On this episode of the Breaking the Game show, Austin and I are joined by Dan Favelli of Bleacher Report and of NBA Math, and we just talk about statistics and what role they do and should play in evaluating the NBA game. You're not going to want to miss this episode. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. We'll be right back after this break. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Breaking the Game show here on the Nothing But Net channel on Dash Radio. I'm one of the co-hosts here, Stephen Gillespie, and joining me as he always does is my buddy Austin Carr. Austin, how you doing today, brother? Doing good, doing good, Stephen. It's been a good day. It's uh, had a day off, so I was able to get a lot done for the show and, and whatnot. So, how about you? How's your day going? Can't complain, man. So, just getting used to you know baby number four being in the house and you know mm-hmm. trying to just do regular real world stuff with another kid. Right. So, you know, just a little adjustment, but nothing too, nothing too much to complain about, man. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Awesome. Well, you know, we've got a pretty exciting show today. Uh, we do have a special guest, uh, Dan Favale from, um, he's from NBA math. I'm oh, sorry, um, Austin. It's Favale. 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 Yep. He just told us and I yep. immediately messed it up. Sorry about that. <laughs> well, well, I'll let him kind of introduce himself, Dan. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, no problem. Thank you guys for having me. Mm-hmm. Awesome, well, Dan, awesome. so you do a little bit of work for a couple of different places that people might be familiar with, right? Like Bleacher Report and NBA Math. Before we get going on the show, just uh, do you mind sharing with the folks a little bit about what you do for each of those respective platforms? Yeah, um, I cover the NBA full time for Bleacher Report. So that's my primary gig. I'm also the co-host of the Hardwood Knox podcast and the deputy editor at NBA Math, a website that I cannot take the least bit of credit for, but a colleague and friend of mine, Adam Frommel, started with the hope of making advanced analytics, which is two words we actually don't really like to use, but hopes of making statistics more accessible and easy to comprehend for just people who want to read about basketball and also to properly contextualize them or contextualize them as best we can. Excellent stuff. Yeah. And that's kind of the the premise of today's show. You know, there's a lot of NBA games and storylines and whatnot going on. But Austin and I thought that it would be a pretty cool idea just to, you know, bring you on, Dan, and kind of dive into a little bit of more on the analytical and statistical side of the game and how to properly like analyze these things. You know, which which numbers can you quote unquote trust, if at all? You know, there's a number of people who hear the word analytics or hear the word statistics and immediately they, they want to run away or tune out, right? Because every some people believe that you solely have to believe the eye test where Austin and I are of the mindset, Dan, I'm sure you are too. You have to use everything in conjunction with one another. There's no like one right thing to look at and, and, and trust, right? So uh, Austin, you want to kind of take it away for the questions that we have prepared? Yeah, definitely. Thank you, Stephen. Um, well, first of all, we just kind of wanted to get your your feel for, you know, you like you said, you don't like calling them advanced analytics. So we'll stay statistics. Um, you know, where do you fall in terms of how good it is for the NBA with all of these new statistics? Is it is it something that you really rely on more than anything else? Or is it just a piece of the puzzle? Or, you know, just kind of give us your idea on, on how you feel about them. So I'm of the mind that more information is never a bad thing. It's just more so how it's applied. And for someone like me who's covering the league at large and not and choppering in for games at a time with certain teams, rather than, you know, if you cover the the you know the Atlanta Hawks and you're watching every single game twice, like you're watching the Atlanta Hawks more than I am, maybe it's not as important to look at the granular stats because you just have such a feel for the way they're playing. So I think it's a, a really great way in some cases to able to inform how you watch certain teams that maybe you don't watch a ton mm-hmm. and that the danger is probably more so in just how numbers are misrepresented or used as these end alls be alls in discussions. And I'm sure, you know, I'm sure I've been guilty of it at times too, a bunch of times, I'm sure. Um, and even at NBA math, you know, our, 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 hallmark, our hallmark stat, excuse me, is total points added, which is one of those to- catch all metrics. And it's not supposed to be used as like this end all. It's another kitchen sink metric where 
you want to be able to look at it and be understand like, oh, that's how well a player is doing that season. And so that's more of like a macro. But when you're zooming in and you have like all access to this stuff where you can look at at what time in the shot clock player field goal opportunities are coming from, mm-hmm. um, what side of the courts they're coming from, how many dribbles they're taking, their average time of possession. I find all that stuff fascinating because I think they can help shape and inform and instruct um just better discussions overall and you don't ever want to use them solely without watching basketball. And I don't think, I don't know anyone who leans on numbers heavily, who doesn't watch basketball. And so that seems to be the the biggest misconception. Right. That's, that's definitely where I think Steven and I kind of fall into, you know, we both definitely like to watch the game, but earlier this year we did a, you know, a project where we kind of ranked all of the top 125 or so players that we thought in, in different tiers. And I, I kind of, you know, have watched all these guys know, know a little bit about, you know, the majority of them or a lot about some of them, but that was just kind of a way for me, just some of the advanced numbers to really, you know, differentiate between guys that were extremely close in terms of just my overall thoughts about them. So I just kind of, I like to use them more to, to validate what I've seen on the court and then to kind of differentiate between those guys that are, you know, maybe statistically or at first look really close together and sometimes it's not always the case, and sometimes it is. Um, you did mention, though, uh, total points added. So I was wanting, to, I was interested to know. Other than that, what are some of the other numbers that you really kind of like to rely on um, when you evaluate players? One of the things I look at is sort of how their their shots are coming, because I think where I do enjoy player rankings, and I, I have to write them myself or Bleacher Report, but where it gets really difficult is these guys just don't operate in a vacuum. They have all these different roles. And so I think, you know, look at Luka Doncic, the level of shot difficulty on the looks that he's taking compared to, you know, another star who's not going to create for himself so much, or a lot of big men in the league where it's his teammate, Christoph Porzingis would be just a good example. He's going to rely on a lot of catch and shoot looks. So mm-hmm. I'd like to look at stuff like that, where it's how many of these, you know, jump shots are coming assisted. What is the percentage on their, their off the dribble jumpers. And that's probably the most important shot in basketball right now is having that off the dribble three down. So that's mm-hmm. something I naturally gravitate towards. I am a big fan of kind of looking at, um, play types too just how is their offense you know in general in the aggregate being generated how much pick and roll um are they running and the the efficiency in those situations matters but i'm more interested in the volume in that where it's you know if paul george is running pick and rolls 40 percent on 40 percent of their offensive possessions that shows that the clippers are really depending on him to sort of be their almost primary creator this year and so those are the two especially early season and Mm -hmm. with efficiency you have to just watch and wait and see how it develops but those are the like just two that i lean on i do lean on a ton of them but i'm a big fan of the more the more granular stuff that can paint a better picture of how a certain player is stylistically faring on the court awesome awesome um are there any stats that maybe you you see people use a lot that you're not a big fan of or anything that you see used the wrong way maybe is a better way to put it I don't know that I would say I'm not a fan of this, but it was a mistake that I made a lot earlier on when you look at lineup data and just understanding one, what's a meaningful sample size and, you know, 15 possessions, 30 possessions, like that's just not, that amounts to very few minutes of playing time on the court. Mm -hmm. And the way that you then contextualize them, and this is something I did a lot like years ago where it's, oh, if um, Dallas's starting lineup has an offensive rating of 130.7, that's the equivalent of what would have been the best offense in the league. You just can't, make those types of judgments because you're dealing with such a small sample size relative to entire teams worth of possessions. And so I've gotten away from that. It's more, you know, cleaning the glass has been useful where they show you what um, percentile um, of efficiency certain lineups rank within. And so that's been super helpful. But I think with lineup data, there can just be a lot of misleading stuff in there. And you look at even just the player's individual on off data, DeMar DeRozan is a great example of this. I don't by any means think he's still a top 25 player, but we've kind of gotten too far away from the point that, oh, he's really good. It's just that when you look at some of these lineups he's been in to start games, um, that's going to account for a lot of the the on-off discrepancies. And maybe in Toronto where he had good defensive players around him, the fact that they were net negative with him on the court was a bigger concern, whereas in San Antonio, I just won't read as much into it. And so context is important with all of that. Mm -hmm. Just as important as the lineup's actual data is one, the volume, and then two, just the composition. Like, what? who else is in that lineup? And that's, the, I guess, again, I wouldn't call it a pet peeve because I try not to react too strongly to these, but citing individual offensive and defensive ratings, like, that just doesn't have any – that doesn't sway me to any player one way or the other. And so that's something that I think, in general, it would be cool to see um, NBA circles get away from because it still happens fairly regularly, I'd say, at this point. 
Yeah, and one of those that that you hear a lot, especially in mainstream, you know, platforms and, and, and medias and things like that, right, is is plus minus, right? And this is a stat that you that you see where like, oh, well, this player had this plus minus for this one individual game. Now, I think for one game, plus minus can be a little bit more of a, um, you know, it's more accurate in in such a small minute sample size. Because you're looking at how they perform relative to just that one game, but when you expand out plus minus for like a, say a whole season, that to me is kind of hard to say because like you mentioned earlier, it typically teams will roll out like primarily one lineup that they believe works, and right, why wouldn't they if it's showing to be successful, right? So I think that whenever we see like these mainstream media platforms and things like that put out team statistics to prove an individual success, like a plus minus, it can be a little bit misleading. Like you were just saying, Dan. Yeah. For smaller sample sizes, I think it's mostly fine. I mean, if there's a game where the warriors get absolutely slaughtered and everyone's like a minus 27 or something, but Steph is a plus 15 somehow um, like, yeah, there's something there. And then even in, in crunch time, like I think as you get later in the season, it's fine to rely on, you know, net ratings and defensive and offensive ratings, but you're dealing with such a small sample size, even in the context of an entire season, that I don't mind plus minus as much there. Um, but yeah, entire season ones, and even with net rating, that can be problematic mm-hmm. too. And there are metrics that try to address this, like um, ESPN's um, RPM, that can be all over the place sometimes, but that's correct. <laughs> um, but multi-year RAPM is one that um, I've grown to really enjoy. Uh, it's And it'll help in a single season as well. But if you can look at like three years and five years and they're trying to adjust for luck, nothing again is perfect, but that seems like it provides like more of an accurate snapshot than a lot of, these other uh, metrics, which again, are, can be somewhat valuable to very valuable with smaller sample sizes. But as you extrapolate, uh, that's where they get harder to to measure their value. Now, Dan, real quick, before we move on to the next question, some of the listeners that we have on right now may kind of be in this camp, right? Where they're not super familiar with a lot of the terminology and abbreviations. Can you just explain real quick that multi-year RAPM just to kind of put people's you know mindset to understand a little bit better to, to what it is that we're referring to? Yeah, so it's regularized, it's regularized, adjusted plus minus, and that's even it's just a mouthful to say. And then when you put luck adjusted in front of it, like it gets to be a mouthful. Um, and it's just it's a catch-all metric for measuring a player's individual impact on the floor. And like I think it's a good way to see how far above replacement level they might be, or if you're trying to just measure them in the context of of other stars. And it's the same idea with TPA. You see it with box plus minus at basketball reference and even with RPM. Um, I don't know the formulas for RPM and even RAPM. Like those are stuff that I do not believe is public. Definitely RPM. But that's, I think, how you try and view them is that if you're trying to have this larger discussion about, you know, who are the top 10 players in the NBA, maybe you're not using it to discredit anyone. But if you look at um, this is something that I saw with Nikola Jokic and he's just traditionally within the top you know, five to 15 of every single one of these advanced metrics year in, year out, and even on these multi-year metrics, like that probably tells you something. Again, it's not an end-all, but that's where they're most useful. And the fact that you can you look at multi-year RAPM um, to see like kind of how a player is fared over the longer term, again, the the, lar- the more sample size that you're incorporating to me would, would be the better. And so that's why that one has become a, a favorite of mine. Obviously not something you use if you're looking at one season specifically, um, but just having that ability to look at multi-year consolidated value to that one kitchen sink metric is super useful to me. Yeah, it definitely, you know, it makes sense to me because we see all the time guys have these kind of outlier seasons where, you know, maybe it's a contract year or, or whatever. Maybe they get in a situation where, you know, one or two of the other guys that have a high usage rate on their team get hurt and their, you know, usage rate skyrockets. And so, it, you know, I get what you're saying there. Definitely. I've, I've always kind of wondered about that, you know, the year to year stuff, how, you know, how much one guy sometimes one year has a, you know, his numbers are a certain spot on the board and then all of a sudden they shoot way up and then they go back down, you know, whether or not that's something realistic to really believe in after one year, or if it's something that you should look at over the course of multiple years. But you, uh, you mentioned something that I thought was interesting. You said, you know, these luck adjusted stats is, is there actually like luck in shooting Do guys just get hot sometimes and go on a crazy shooting streak or, or is there some kind of, is there a way to, I I don't know, I guess. How uh, much of that luck is, you know, relative to skill, I think is kind of along those lines of what Austin is trying to say. Thank you. Yeah. I don't know that I've ever seen anything definitive on that. There've been papers written about the hot hand. I even have something bookmarked right now about, can you develop a player's feel for the game? When we talk about how it just looks like they're making decisions in the half court. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't have an answer there that that's, it's a fascinating question. I think 
far smarter people than myself continue to ask them a lot to this day. Yeah, right. I mean, how do how exactly do you quantify luck, right? Like, I think if you could do that, things like the lottery and <laughs> things like that might right. be a little bit more easier to take advantage of for things like that. But I think that is a fair point. What you were just saying, Austin, is that, you know, we do have stats that do try to account for what they call shooter luck, right? And, and a lot of that is probably based on, you know, traditional averages of shooting percentages for players teams sets like you were saying earlier with lineups mm -hmm. and things like that that you know cleaning the glass try to take into account but again a lot of it is just you know based on whoever the stat creator is what they want to take into consideration to make the statistic work for mm -hmm. what they're trying to accomplish right so yeah that's that makes sense for sure um so one thing i did want to kind of ask about is you know we've seen a, a a fast start from like the Cleveland Cavaliers and teams that nobody really expected to hear much from this year, uh, specifically to Cleveland. Do you think this is a team where at least from what we're seeing so far that, that the performance we're getting out of guys like Darius Garland and Colin Sexton is, is, is that sustainable? Is this just kind of a, a blip on the radar or, or what, what, you, what do you think in, for, for a team like that? Because I kind of feel like, you know, they've drafted so high the last few years in the draft. Like if this is what you kind of expect to see from guys that get taken there, and, and it may be something we can expect to see going forward because they are so young. I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on that. With Darius Garland and Colin Sexton specifically, I lean more towards what we're seeing is real than not. And with Sexton, mm -hmm. it's just he's doing a lot of the things that he was already doing. Um, when you start viewing him as a combo guard, he just becomes a much more valuable player where his assist rate isn't as problematic. And he's even done a better job, I think, of making just decisions inside the arc. And you look at just some of his numbers on, on drives. And he's always, you know, the shooting has been real now for basically two seasons from him. Garland's a little bit tougher to buy into. I think his outside shooting, no, it's not going to hover around like 50% or whatever it's at right. right now. But he showed flashes of that last year. It's just the comfort that he's shown inside the arc. That's the shot making I would watch. It just feels like the game has slowed down a lot for him. And there were points last year towards the end specifically where it felt like that was kind of happening. But that's something that you kind of have to look at because he's there I think a lot of Cavs fans believe that he is the higher ceiling of the two, probably because of what he can do as a playmaker. And so that's something to watch. The actual, I don't even know if you would call it a red flag, but something I would question is just the defensive success right now. Uh, they're still second in points allowed per possession once you take out garbage time for cleaning the glass. And they force turnovers more than any team in the league, but they barely foul yet. And that's just something you don't see happen. And you kind of also factor in um, that they're not this great rebounding team. I think their last time I checked, they were 26th in defensive rebounding rate. It's like all of that's just weird to me. And like you can dig deeper into the type of shots they're allowing um, and the lineups that they're running that are having the most success. And Lowry Nance Jr. has been absolutely huge for them. I think Sexton's been better defensively from the games I've seen this season. Um, Drummond has been good for them. But that's something I look at and I'm like, you know, that doesn't even feel sustainable. Even if you view Okoro as a net positive already on that end when he returns from injury, I would be shocked if we look at this Cleveland Cavaliers team and they're just so decidedly above average defensively this year. That's a good point. And one thing that you mentioned, too, was the rebounding. Um, I, and you mentioned, too, that everything else was going to come back to normal, right? But when you have guys like JaVale McGee, you know, Andre Drummond, and, and Kevin Love on this team, traditionally and historically speaking, pretty solid rebounders. Is that rebounding aspect that you just mentioned, Dan, do you think that that's something that could kind of, you know, normalize based on what we would expect to see from these players? Or is it just do you think that the teams and the lineups that they're running out there or, or more of the reason why the rebounding numbers aren't as high? That's a great question. I think a lot of this stuff has always happened with Andre Drummond's team, where he drags down the individual rebounding totals of his teammates when he's on the floor because he gobbles up so many, but then like he's not necessarily going to make your team a great rebounding team, mm -hmm. and that's sort of what we're seeing. They've actually been better statistically um, – hitting the defensive glass when he's off the court and when you're going to have like a Larry Nance Jr. Uh, there. I think Kevin Love being injured might factor into that as well. You also look at their guards, um, and I think what a lot of people talk about, or now the debate is how valuable really is rebounding, and that's like a whole different discussion that I haven't even put enough thought into yet. But they don't have like these super awesome rebounding guards when you look at them. And maybe Okoro can come in and help that when when he's healthy, but that's even something to watch. And then even some of their, you know, quote-unquote wing players, like a Jetty Osman, you're not going to rely on him to get a ton of boards. So I think it's probably more so the cosmetic makeup of their team. Um, but when you are so reliant on one player to do a majority of the rebound, it also feels like there's, at least with Drummond's teams, that there's always this weird rebounding noise. And even in the larger scheme of the, of the defense too, 
not so much this year in Cleveland, but when you look at those Detroit teams, that there's always just been a lot of noise with him when he's on the court. And it's probably difficult slash impossible to pinpoint, at least for me personally. Okay, fair enough. And Austin, just re- I want to ask one more real quick question Go on ahead. Cleveland while we're here. How do, Dan, how do you explain the the handles that we're seeing from JaVale McGee this season? Like he's pulling off some pretty incredible moves. Um, I'm, I'm not sure how much of an opportunity he got to watch them, but it seems like maybe once a game, like he's taking the ball like full court, doing like a little Euro step or doing something that traditionally we're not used to seeing from JaVale McGee. Is this something that you think could be sustainable or is this just him feeling like there's not a lot of pressure on him to perform in Cleveland, especially leaving LA, right? Like how he's performing this season relative to what we've seen from him, you know, overall throughout his career. I think it's the, the act of it is sustainable so long as they allow it. And I think what's helped him is that, you know, you've talked about those good JaVale McGee moments, but they're mm-hmm. also just like the, you know, why is he throwing up that hook shot moments mm-hmm. that are in the shacking of full JaVale right. McGee. Right. And I, so, I, made, I made that argument that, you know, he's always been doing these moves. It's just, he never did them right. And that's why he always ended up on shacked and a fool. So, well, he also just has more creative license now in Cleveland where the pecking order just isn't going to be as stringent because LeBron and Anthony Davis aren't there as it was in Los Angeles or even with he's with Golden State and he like had some wild plays in Golden State too so correct I don't think that he's done anything that would shock me if you told me he was going to average um one three-point attempt per game and shoot over 40 percent for the year like that would legitimately shock me because that's what he's doing right now right so one thing that I was interested in I kind of just thought of you mentioned you know their defensive you know rating being so high and, and that you don't think that's sustainable uh can you talk a little bit about like how much having those rim protectors really helps, uh, you know, a team, like even in terms of just their perimeter defense, just the mindset that those guards have knowing that they've got guys that can, that are elite at protecting the rim and kind of how that just affects overall team defense, I guess. Yeah. I mean, rim protection is measured in so many different ways right now. I think one form of it can actually start on the perimeter where if you have just guards and even wings that can really contain the ball and prevent like teams from getting these quality looks inside, it takes a lot of pressure off your big man. And I think that's actually probably what Drummond suffered from a lot in Detroit, where you just look at some of the guards he played with. It was like, okay, there's not a lot of perimeter like ball containment going on there with big specifically though. Um, you can tell if you use Joel Embiid or Rudy Gobert as an example, like if you have someone like them behind you, like defensive possessions, ball handlers can be actively funneled towards them essentially. And the jazz do do that a lot with Rudy Gobert, which I think is again, who knows how factual correct, factually correct this is, but it's part of the reason why they've been able to be so successful defensively with, with him on the floor, even though they don't have like these athletic wing types and never really have around him to stop the ball is that you have someone who's just so smart and making decisions around the basket can make them quickly, efficiently, isn't going to foul necessarily a ton. And then once you develop that reputation or you become so good at it, there are certain players that actually can just change the geometry of an offensive possession for another team. And Joel Embiid has been great at this. It's even with Rudy Gobert. Like if you just look at the, the frequency with which opponents take their shots at the rim with those two on the court, they're just drastically lower than when they're off. And you can Mm -hmm. even see it with guards where they try and go around them or they'll pull up and bail out early on drives as opposed to attacking the basket. And that's why rim protectors can still be so important. Everyone wants all these switchable guys. And we've seen teams kind of devalue the center position. How much should you pay them? Can you cheaply approximate their value? There might be something to that in many cases, if a majority of the cases. But when you have someone like Joel Embiid or Rudy Gobert, who can really just change the way that another team shapes their offense. Like that's an actual, well, huge deal. And I don't even know if we can fully quantify it. Um, Right. We've done a better job, but I don't even know if it's fully there. Yeah. I feel like that's something that I, at least I noticed in the the very last game of the finals last year with Miami and the Lakers, Anthony Davis was just kind of all over the court. And it seemed like, even though those guys for Miami were still attacking the rim, they were pulling up, you know, a, a dribble or two sooner or pulling up short to try to float the ball over him. And he was just affecting the entire flow of their offense without even really, you know, statistically getting a whole lot of blocks or anything like that. I think he had three in the game, but if you just, we're just watching the game. If you'd asked me afterwards, I would have said he had five or six just, just based on, you know, the way he was able to change some guys shots. And um, one of the other things that Steven and I have had quite a few good discussions about, we've talked about it on the show. Some it's been kind of a, 
a hot point for our show and our, our network in general is the idea of a guy like Rudy Gobert and the, uh, the the massive contract that he just signed. You know, it's obviously $208 million contract that was in between the, the max and the super max. And Steven always makes a good point. Is it is it smart to give that high a percentage of your salary cap to a guy whose career points per game average is about 12? And I, I make the argument that his defense and his rebounding and all the other stuff that he does do make him more valuable than just that 12 points per game. So where do you kind of fall in that in that discussion? Are you on the side that Gobert earned that contract, at least mostly, or, or is he definitely overpaid and you don't see the value there? He definitely earned it, and I think a big part of this is you also have to look at what the market for him is going to be. We just watched a very cat-poor market pay Gordon Hayward four years and $120 million. And <laughs> yeah. the saying it only takes one team, next year there's going to be like five to ten teams that can offer Gobert not as much money. His four-year max would have been noticeably less than what he got from the Jazz, but there would have been a team that gave him a four-year max. There probably would have been a couple teams that did that. So if you're the Jazz, you're paying a little bit more than that rate to just have him, and you're a smaller market. You're not this free agency destination. Um, to just have him, there's value in that, knowing that he's there. And he's not, you know, if he, if he was 29 right now, 30, it's a little, but he's 28. So that made it, in essence, a harder decision, but easier to justify where it's like, you know what? Okay, this will take him through. I think it's what is his age thirty three season or whatever it might be. Like you can at least talk yourself into him still being good, and that's a lot different than his age thirty four or thirty five season for a big man. Where it does get risky, and where I probably, as a callous observer, I probably wouldn't have paid him that much, is that I'm always going to skew towards the primary scorers, the primary shot creators, and Rudy Gobert has a ton of value on the offensive end because of the screens that he sets, and those are a way to generate space without him actually shooting. But Donovan Mitchell is going to be the engine that drives that offense, even Mike Conley. And in a vacuum, you know, the on-off data doesn't support this right now, but if you go into the playoffs, a Donovan Mitchell-type player, a Mike Conley-type player, or just a primary playmaking wing, like those are going to be the guys that can more readily lift up lineups on their own. And so that's where I've, it's become like a dilemma for me where it's like, yeah, Rudy Gobert is a generational defender. He, I understand the Jazz's logic. And I guess if you're in their exact situation, maybe I would have done the same. But allocating so much of your cap to that type of big man who is never going to be a primary anchor for you on the offensive end, it does become problematic. And I think it forces you to more shrewdly build out the rest of your team, not just at the talent that you're choosing, but what you're eventually paying them. And it's harder than ever for the Jazz now because Donovan Mitchell's own max is going to kick in next year. So you have to become, they've already played their best cap space chips, but as you build this team moving forward, you're going to have to start hitting on really affordable guys on the margins that complement them. Um, and also, you know, Donovan Mitchell still has the question of, we saw what he did in the bubble, but can he be that primary offensive anchor that I'm referencing right now? And what happens if Mike Conley decides to leave in free agency? What really just happens there? So there's a lot that goes into it. Uh, to, to sum it up, I would say callously, I would not have paid a player like Gobert that money. But if you're the Jazz and just looking at their situation and what awaited you in free agency this year, I probably would have paid him. The fact that it was over $200 million actually did surprise me a little bit, but they still did get him for less than the Supermax. Yeah, yeah and it, just real quick, uh, I'm sorry, just real quick, Dan, um, like Austin said, like I didn't, kind of like how you just stated, like I didn't think that he should have commanded that much money, but that doesn't mean, and I think you're of the same mindset, Dan, that doesn't mean that you don't value what he brings to your team, right? Like he's still very important to your defense. He was actually my defensive player of the year based on a lot of advanced metrics and just the impact that he brings to his team defensively. And he's legitimately like the only all NBA defender on his team right now. So I took all that into consideration. Uh, and I think too, just the, the timing of him signing, it was odd because, you know, they're about to have Mike Conley Jr.'s contract expire at the end of the season. You mentioned also that Donovan Mitchell's contract is going to come up. I think it would have been a little bit more prudent of them to say, hey, we're going to pay you, but let's wait until a free agency to where we could bring someone in and then use our restrictive free agency rights to kind of help compensate the lack of our ability to attract a lot of free agencies even today and then further down the line. But Dan, you also touched on something that I wanted to ask. Um, you said that perimeter defense helping the the rim, you know, at the rim defense. And to me, when you said that, the first team that came into my mind was the Boston Celtics, where they have guys like Marcus Smart, Jalen Brown, you know, Jason Tatum, and they get away with having a guy, you know, nothing wrong with him at all. But Daniel Tice is not really the first guy that you would think of as being a starting center in the NBA, but they have him at a good number. He kind of plays bigger than his height would normally suggest. Do you think that Boston kind of fits that 
kind of mold that you were just painting that picture where that perimeter defense helps their, you know, at the basket defense? They certainly did at one point. I think we can look at now and wonder if they have enough versatility on their roster. Right. Um, you know, they've lost Horford and Gordon Hayward now in consecutive off seasons. And Horford was more valuable to the defense than Hayward, but that was just another wing type body that you were talking about. And now they're just really thin after smart and Tatum and, mm-hmm. and Jalen Brown. And we've seen that they've had rebounding issues. It doesn't really matter if Thompson or Daniel Tice or Robert Williams is on the floor for them. They're, they're allowing a ton of looks at the rim right now so they would be you know last year's team might be a great example that i think they finished like a top five or top seven defense overall and so they would be the type of squad where you can build this premier defense without having that you know red carpet anchor on the back line like a joel Embiid or like a rudy gobert okay fair enough yeah and that's definitely interesting um i i kind of always agreed with steven's you know take that uh boston seems like they've always been good at kind of hiding not necessarily bad defensive players but uh, uh you know the type of player where maybe it plays out of position or you know like he said a, an undersized center so that, that was you know interesting i'm glad he asked that so just real quick um when we talk about player evaluation overall and i i've kind of been starting to read into some things i i, I read recently it's an older it's an older study it's about Dennis Rodman and his value versus, you know, just like traditional ways that we, you know, evaluate players. And I was thinking of it in terms of guys in, in today's league. And do you think there is a, a, a tendency to maybe overvalue just raw points per game averages for guys in, in terms of uh, how much that actually affects winning for their team? Or do you think that that's, you know, that people actually have it right when that when they look at that as kind of the most important, you know, stat? No, I think it's definitely still overrated at that point. And there could be, you know, you could be averaging 20 points per game and not generating any of your own looks. So what happens if you pull certain players off the floor you're going to play with? You're just not going to play as well. Um, And then even some of the own primary shot creators, does their stuff work in the playoffs? We've seen that with Lou Williams where the foul baiting stuff just doesn't hold. We've even seen it with, you know, James Harden a little bit, still someone who can carry a team, but like he's been – uh, statistically just less effective when he gets to the postseason. That that was a big problem with DeMar DeRozan when he was in Toronto as well. So I absolutely agree that you can't look at just points per game. And the six-man of the year award has basically um, mm-hmm. become that. But you would hope soon um, that we would be just generally more open to how we value guys and their impact, where it's, I think, a, this is the low-hanging fruit, but like Steph Curry's value off the ball. You don't want to see him mm-hmm. off the ball too much, especially now if you're – a Golden State fan, but because of the way he bends defenses, like he just creates all these upper opportunities for all these other players. Mm-hmm. If he's having a lower scoring night or not shooting as well from the field, he's still having this huge impact on the game because of the attention that he commands. And so um, looking at the six man of the year discussion last year, like um, someone instead of a, a Montrez Harrell or even a Dennis Schroeder, like a, a Dante DiVincenzo, I thought deserved a little bit more consideration there just because right. he was able to impact the game more so as a passer, what he was doing really on, on defense um, you can make the case that Schroeder would have deserved it over Harold because he's at least generating more of his own offense than, than Harold had to. So there's a lot of things that go into it, but I do think you can't look at people simplify it where it's like, Oh, you know, Rudy Gobert is averaging under 15 points a game or something. and just got paid $205 million. Rudy Gobert doesn't get paid to score. And so it has to be evaluated in the context of, of everyone's roles. And that's probably why ranking players is so tough in general, just because their, their mode of operations are so different from player to player where not everything is Luka Doncic versus James Harden, where their styles and roles are so similar. You can make a clear cut call. They're just going to be that huge discrepancy in the functionality of a lot of these players. Yeah, definitely. And one thing that I've kind of started to buy into is this notion of this idea called like duplicability or, or the ability to duplicate something. Basically, if, you know, a guy that scores 25 points per game only has 15 that night, it's pretty, you know, safe to say that someone on his team is going to score those, uh, those other 10 points more often than not, maybe more so than a guy like a Rudy Gobert, who is just an elite lockdown defender and does all these little things that, people don't necessarily look at the numbers as much for, but it may not be a, a, you know, a skill that's as, as common in the NBA, I guess. Basically it's just the idea that, uh, you know, given enough usage rate, the majority of NBA players can, can score a lot of points. Do you, do you think that's something that's true or. I, I would say, yes, it's there's, there is certain levels of offense though, that I don't know that you could just replace if, if Luka right. Doncic only scores, you know, 10 to 15 points in a game, like there's probably a pretty, a good chance that Dallas is losing 
that right. game because they don't have someone else who can generate the same type of offense. And there are just mm-hmm. some teams or certain players where the way that they get their offense informs the way that everyone else is getting their offense, that if mm-hmm. you do lower their performance level in any way or put them off the, the court, like that's going to be harder to replicate. But scoring in general, you know, these guys are in the, the NBA for a reason. I think that's why some of these teams view – um, certain big men as they're easy to estimate on the cheap. And then even just some of more of these spot up shooters or um, shooters in general, we have seen that shooting pays. Look at what, you know, Joe Harris and Davis Bertans were right. in free agency mm-hmm. this year, but there might be, you know, with the heat rather than having ever paid Wayne Ellington, this big money when he was really off of this hot start, like they went out and tried to find someone else who did what he did. And they ended up with Duncan Robinson who might be a better version of that. Will they pay him when he enters free agency this year? Like what does he end up getting? That'll be interesting to note so a player like that uh, a duncan robinson as good as he is like he's so much easier to replace than um you know a james harden a luka Doncic, a jason tatum um even a jalen brown at this point that's why jalen brown is so much more valuable no i don't Mm -hmm. think he's going to have a an effective field goal percentage on 70 uh for Mm pull jumpers all year but the fact that he's taking more of them and can really dribble into these different types of two-point shots and three-point looks like that just has more value than the player he was last season who relied a lot more on, yeah, there were, there were some pull-ups, but it was mostly just drive, shoot off the catch, and can I score in transition? And I'm, I'm oversimplifying that, but like that's sort right. of the, um, just the blueprint for, for that type of player. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And, um, go, go ahead. ahead. Sorry. No, you're good. You're good. Okay. Yeah. And I just, I think too, that the, that the role that they have for their team, like a Jalen Brown, like you can, that's, you can actually see that with your eyes and that correlates to, you know, all the numbers that you're speaking to as well, Dan is like, you can see that he has a more defined role on this team because yes, they lost Gordon Hayward, but that kind of more narrowly defined his role to, you know, something that he can go out and attack as, as far as playing off of other people, especially with Kemba being out for the beginning of the season. Dan, just one question I had for you, and this doesn't have to particularly, you know, just be the numbers, how I'm going to ask this, but just how you've kind of digested the season so far is what do you make of, you know, the shorter offseason? I mean, from this offseason to the one that preceded it, you know, it's roughly about half the time that that happened between, you know, from when the season ended to where preseason began. You know, these rookies only had about a week of preseason and then final rosters had to be set. And then the very next day, the season started up. You know, I just wanted to ask um, how the shorter offseason has kind of led to this erratic start that that we're seeing now and how you've kind of tried to make sense of it all. Yeah, I think I've grown to just expect very little from defenses overall at this point Mm -hmm. where it feels like – that the offenses look okay. Even among the teams that were playing recently, people are talking about Los Angeles sleepwalking through the season right now. And the, the Lakers still have a top six offense at the moment. Um, but you look at just some of the defenses, um, Boston starting off basically in the bottom 10, it, it makes you wonder if there's some, not only a level of fatigue, but you had mentioned um, the abbreviated training camps, um, rookies, and there's just new additions on some of these teams where uh, it feels like the, a team like the Pacers, even though they have a new coach, has a leg up on everyone else because their roster is just um, – it has a ton of continuity relative to last year, whereas if you look at a Hawks team, yeah, they've been um, a, fi- a firecracker offensively, but they are struggling on the defensive end. And if you don't have familiarity with players and you didn't get this um, regular size training camp, maybe it just takes some time to um, – for that element of the game to, to really kick in. And so hopefully as the season goes on, we'll just see tighter games because I think defenses will get better just from looking at the numbers. And even from the eye test, you look at these teams playing offense and that for the most part seems fine in many mm-hmm. of the instances, it's the defense that's just been in certain cases. Wow. Where even, yeah, we always knew the Lakers and they rate favorably defensively, but they're, they're taking plays off. It seems like they're taking entire quarters off. So there are situations like that, but again, you, you point to a team like, a Boston, I don't think a lot of people expected them to rate um, so low defensively. And even looking at a team like Golden State, that was looking at their talent, you thought there was going to be more hustle there and maybe Draymond Green coming back really helps them out. Uh, Denver being like one of the, the four or five worst defensive teams, I right. think they were always going to suffer after losing Grant and Torrey Craig, but are, were they going to allow teams to shoot like a jillion percent at the rim like they're doing right now? I don't think anyone saw that coming. So I think it's something to monitor as the season goes on. And I'm not even sure if that's like – a justifiable answer right now just when you look at how far off the betting lines have been relative to where they've been at in previous seasons where i think someone i can't remember who was on twitter so i can't credit them but they've been off by like an average of 13 points per game and they're normally only off by like an average of eight or nine at this point in the season and so that's just that's a massive dis- discrepancy and so i'm interested to see whether that gap gets bridged over time 
Yeah, and um, one thing I, I wrote on a piece on you know offtheballnetwork.com where Austin and I are you know affiliated to, and I went through and calculated from opening week from this season to last season, there was about a four point per game average difference, you know, and I also saw on the athletic too that the amount of blowouts, which were, you know, defined as 20 plus points per game is already at like over 12% for the first 50 games. Obviously we're not at 50 games right now, but from the year prior to it was only at about seven. And for most seasons dating all the way back to Oh three, those numbers traditionally have gone up as the season has progressed. So I'm just interested to see if this is something that we can expect to, you know, continue or maybe even increase the amount of blowouts, you know, because like I said, historically speaking, they have gone up slightly more seasons than they have not. And the the other thing to maybe watch too, is just because we know like how three point volume generally increases from year to year. Um, Currently 39.4% of all teams uh, or 39.4% of all shots are coming from, downtown for the week and that's about up a percent from last year so it's not this huge discrepancy but when you are taking more threes there's just a higher variance there because there's going to be nights where you hit a ton so that's going to really just drum up your total or if you're going to miss a ton um, that's going to open doors for other teams and so I don't know how much of that is at play I would guess very little just because again 38.4 percent to 39.4 percent isn't a huge increase but early on when defenses are still trying to get accustomed to the new players that have been welcomed in, or if you're someone who hasn't played in eight or nine months until now, uh, maybe that is a, a, one of the contributing factors. Interesting. I, I was wanting to ask uh, specifically about a, you know, kind of this milestone stat that I think there's been a lot of coverage on TV about this lately. And it's the, the triple double, you know, we've mm-hmm. seen in years past, you know, 10, 15 years ago, it was unheard of for guys to have more than, you know, a handful to maybe a couple guys got double figure, triple doubles year in and year out to now we're seeing, you know, just an explosion in those to where a guy like, you know, a center like Nikola Jokic is averaging just about a triple double and Russell, Russell Westbrook did it three years in a row. Is is Luka the value of the, is another guy that's getting more and more LeBron LeBron like the last six years of his career or something has more than he did the first 12 or, or something I saw the other day too is it something that fans and, and people that watch the game should still you know think of as this you know kind of measuring stick you know milestone thing or is it something that's definitely not as valuable as it once was. I don't think it's as valuable as it once was. You look at just how many extra possessions there might be and then how teams scheme their rebounding now, where with Russell Westbrook and Oklahoma City specifically, they were designed for him to get defensive mm-hmm. boards and get out and push. At the same time, like we really shouldn't discredit guards for being good at rebounding. That's like not naturally what they're supposed to do. And then right. even in the case of Jokic, a big guy, yeah, the offense runs through him, but he's also just leading these fast breaks, throwing these ridiculous passes. So I think, you know, if teams aren't like, tilting too far to one side to make it happen where Russell Westbrook kind of numbed us to the triple double. I think he's the mm-hmm. player that might be most responsible and maybe even a Harden or a Luka Doncic to, to some extent, but like they're, they're still impressive to me when you look at the context, like if you're not um, someone who's like actively, your team is not padding your rebounds like by design, or that's not just a vessel through which they run their offense. And then it's going to be a little bit more impressive if, you know, when someone like Sabonis or, or even Jokic is going to be able to get a triple double to me and even LeBron, because like they're Julius not- Randall in New York, right? Yeah, we'll see how long that keeps up for it, though. So <laughs> it's it's still impressive, especially when you're looking at certain types of player. But I do think the way that the game is played and certain teams are playing, it definitely opens the door of opportunity more so than it did 15, 20 years ago for a bunch of guys. Definitely. And then one other thing you kind of touched on was just, you know, continuity in terms of all these new moving parts for all these teams and maybe part of the reason some teams are struggling. Um, what do you think about like the Miami Heat? Are, are they are their struggles something that are, are serious that we should kind of be pretty worried about? Because they did keep the majority of their team from last year. And it seems like they so far at least have struggled a lot more than than they did in the bubble. Is it was the bubble kind of a you know an aberration for them, or do you do you still think that they're going to be there at the end of the year as one of the as one of the you know championship contenders? I don't think it was an anomaly for them. When you look at in some of the areas of, of which they're struggling, um, like in offense, they're I, I think they're thirtieth right now in offense, or they're twenty third in offensive efficiency, but they're sixth in effective field goal um, percentage, and so like that's going to normalize at some point too. They've been turning okay. the ball over a bunch. I think a lot of that has to do with not having Jimmy Butler necessarily. What is interesting about them though, is they did seem to have like sort of this fragility on offense where they needed another shot creator aside from Butler and Dragic. um, And they didn't go out and sign that guy and in free agency, if anything, they got a little bit more rigid in, 
their versatility because you replace Jay Crowder with Avery Bradley and you have Myers Leonard back. Like Jay Crowder just was able to help you diversify some of your lineups a lot more on offense than the personnel you have right now. You're banking on Tyler Hero and Bam Adebayo collectively, I guess, sort of filling that gap, and they should still be able to. They're a team that I would look at, and I wouldn't panic necessarily now. Jimmy Butler is going to shoot better and score more. Um, it's just they're like the Lakers. They're coming off that wildly short offseason, 70 days mm-hmm. or 71 days, whatever it ended up being. And so I think that's mostly at play, but there is there is that just – you still do wonder about them. They were a team mm-hmm. their offseason that I kind of spot and was like, did they really get much better, and what happens if the rest of the East sort of catches up to them? Yeah, it kind of felt like to me they they seemed to take off when when Goran Dragic just started, you know, having great game after great game, and he is, you know, up there in in years. And two with, uh, you know, Tyler Hero. Tyler Hero is somebody that I'm kind of, you know, not really sure where where to fall on him because I watch him play and I like a lot of the plays he makes and I like what he does in big moments. But at the same time, it's something that I had looked at a lot is their on off numbers and they're like the majority of their worst lineups in terms of plus minus featured him in those lineups. And I just didn't know really, I don't really know what to make of a player like that because sometimes you see him make these plays and it's like, man, you know, he's just got that kind of it factor where he's not afraid to take the big shots and he's, and he is developing and, and obviously they see something in him, but at the same time, he has some, some kind of confusing numbers too. So I was just interested in, in what you thought about their their overall standing because I did actually pick them as my team to come out of the East um, again this year. I, I liked I kind of expected Bam to take another step forward, and I, I like Eric Spolstra a lot. So I was just interested in that. Uh, Steven, um, before we let Dan get out of here, do you have anything else you want to kind of ask him? Oh, no. Um, just Dan, thank you so much for coming on to the show. We greatly appreciated your time and your your insight. I mean, you just you know blew a lot of – whatever knowledge that I had coming into this interview, you know, just right out of the park. So just Dan, I greatly appreciate your time. Traditionally, what we like to do is, uh, you know, give our guests an opportunity to kind of promote themselves again, to close out the show here on the nothing but net channel on dash radio mm-hmm. and, and just tell the folks where they can find you and some of the things that you may have in the works. If you feel, you know, obligated to share. Yeah. Uh, just the best way to follow my work is on Twitter where I'll have all my stuff from Bleacher Report and Hardwood Knox or my, my main gig. So at Dan Favalli, F-A-V-A-L-E, if you want to follow along there, uh, you're more than welcome to. And thank you guys so much for having me. Yeah, definitely. We appreciate you coming on. You know, I feel like I, I learned a ton for sure. You know, anybody that can make me feel like I, I know a little bit more about the game after I'm done talking to him, I, I really appreciate. So, you know, we just thank you for your time and I, I know you got to get going. You're a busy man. So we'll let you uh, get on out of here and uh, hopefully we'll talk to you again soon. Have a, have a good one. Thanks for coming on. Thanks again for having me, guys. Take care. Thanks, Dan. Have a good one. All right. But Austin, you know, just, you know, we'll, we'll go ahead and, uh, you know, start getting to the portion where we close up the show here. And, uh, you know, I, I know that you and I both do a lot of work, you know, for, you know, off the ball and just wanted to give you, you know, the chance, obviously, at the end of the show, just to let the listeners know you know, what you have going on in the works. Um, I'm actually working on an article about, um, you know, one of the teams that is really struggling this year and it's the Toronto Raptors. Um, you know, I think them and Detroit are the only two one win teams left. Um, and I do think that some of their struggles are for real. And I kind of go in depth into that and, uh, that should be up either tonight or tomorrow early in the day. So definitely head on over to off the ball network.com and, uh, look for that says it should be a, a pretty interesting piece. And I know Steven's got a lot of good work over there too. So why don't you go ahead and, and tell everybody what you've been working on. Yeah, thanks, man. And just, you know, I, I appreciate what you bring to the network. You, you know, you were the one that coordinated the, this interview and Dan was a, a terrific, you know, yes, person to have here on the show. Really appreciated his insight. And just I appreciate you doing the hard work that you bring to the team man. you're very, uh, very awesome. Well, Glad you. to have you thank as a co-host. But uh, as for myself, you can go to offballnetwork.com. I had a couple articles up um, pretty recently, but the most recent one is uh, kind of what I asked Dan. I wanted to gain his insight just to see if, you know, other if I was as smart or close to as other people in the NBA community where I did talk about the erratic nature of this season. And I did bring up like we talked about earlier, you know, the abbreviated you know preseason, the abbreviated training camps and, you know, how rapid everything was from, you know, the end of season to the beginning of the preseason was about 61 days. And, you know, for play for teams like the Lakers and the Heat, who we see early in the season struggled and, you know, the Lakers are returning to form 
pretty quickly, but the Heat is still kind of in the muck and the mire. You know, the the Clippers, you know, recovering decently from that 3-1 lead that they blew. Um, but, you know, teams like the Nuggets, you know, teams like the Bucks, teams like the Celtics, the teams like the Raptors that we were just talking about, you know, they are underperforming, you know, relative to expectations. And, you know, the, sh- the season is shorter. It's condensed by 10 games at 72 games to – you know, to 82. And we're even seeing them with teams like Brooklyn, who are going to have to be without Kevin Durant for four games, what it looks like, right? Within a seven day period, you can't really say, ah, it's early in the season because you've already chopped off 10 days. And now when a star player is taken out for COVID protocol, which I also wrote about, you know, they're going to miss additional time. So now you're talking about a guy missing, you know, 14 games effectively compared to what a normal season would look like. So, you know, that traditional, lag that we see at the beginning of the season teams can't necessarily afford that so i wrote about all of that um on the on the piece that i had for the erratic start and uh very nice yeah you can find all that on off the ball network.com yeah definitely and it's interesting you know kind of thing to read and i i did check it out and you did a good job it's just you know some of these things i'm i'm more worried about or, or more you know uneasy about than others like i do kind of think that denver's got to figure this out quick especially on the defensive end or or they're going to be so far in a hole before too long here that they may not be able to you know just a regression back to what you would expect in terms of you know normal production from their team they may not that may not be enough to to kind of vault them back into contender you know uh, to being a contender like we we all thought they would be at the beginning of the season. And then also too, there's, you know, I, I feel like you said, you know, you mentioned the Lakers struggles. I don't know that anyone sees, sees them and thinks, Oh man, this is something to be worried about where, whereas more like with, you know, the Miami heat, maybe it is something to worry about because we did see Jimmy Butler, you know, run out of gas in those finals when he was the only real shot creator they had for a while. And, and that is going to kind of pose a problem for them. And Boston's another team, you know, that, I'm on the fence. I feel like if they get, you know, if, if if they get Kemba Walker back and he's healthy, they could get going and really take off. But at the same time, too, if if Tatum or Brown have any kind of a slump during the season, like they're going to struggle. They're one and two in terms of made field goals so far this year. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're arguably one of, if not the best, you know, currently at least in terms of how they perform this year, the best duo in in basketball right now. But at the same time, you know, they don't all of a sudden it seems like they went from being a team that had all these different options on offense to they're just, you know, they're kind of thin up front, you know, overall now outside of those guys offensively. And so we got to remember too, though, that Kimball Walker is going to return at right. some point in this season right. and, and their depth will kind of look a little bit more what we anticipated coming into Definitely. the season. They'll, they'll look a lot better once they have Teague as a, you know, one of the better backup point guards in the league and, instead of having to have him start every game. So uh, that's the one where, you know, like I said, I'm on the fence about them. I, I think they'll be fine. I think they're, they're obviously going to be all right. But, you know, Toronto, Denver, some of these teams that we expected to do good are, are definitely struggling. And I'm not sure that it's just a, an aberration. So. Yeah, absolutely. And it's going to be something that we're going to keep an eye on as the season progresses. But, you know, Austin, I've, I've, thank you again for what you do, man. This has been an awesome show. Thank you, everybody, for watching and listening to the to the show tonight, man. It was definitely. a really good time, Austin. Yeah, definitely. It's always fun to get to do this with you, Stephen. And it was I'm glad that our, our guest worked out. He was great. And, you know, Dan, thank you for coming on. You were you were wonderful. You were everything we could have asked for and then some. So, you know, everybody check him out. Check out his work. NBA math, you know, uh, Bleacher Report. Obviously, everybody knows Bleacher Report. NBA math is a pretty interesting site to check out if you're into the more, you know, more of the numbers side of basketball for sure. So it just everybody, thanks for listening. And you know, as always. Yeah, and again, just remember to catch the show every Monday and Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific here on the Nothing But Net channel on Dash Radio. For my co-host Austin Carr, for myself, for the Breaking the Game show, for Nothing But Net, and for Dash Radio, for OffTheBallNetwork.com, for the entire sports world, for the entire basketball world. We will catch up with you guys next time. Be good to one another. Much love, everybody. Have a good one.